Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 5 so that you can follow along uh, in our study of the book of Acts. And while you are locating Acts 5 and getting settled there, I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is, do you ever feel like you are fighting a losing battle? Um, I think we all have experience with that on kind of the micro level. Uh, I know I had experience with that this past Wednesday, as many of you did. Uh, At 5.30 in the morning on Wednesday, I began shoveling our driveway. Uh, Now, our house, we don't have an RV, but we have RV parking. We have five vehicles in our household. And I started at 5.30 in the morning. I finished at 7 o'clock. And at 7 o'clock, you couldn't even tell I had done anything to the sections where I had started. just felt like this losing battle. Uh, All I got out of it was a sore back. So, yeah, get off my lawn. And I I know I'm that guy now, right? Uh, But do you ever feel like you are just, you're fighting a losing battle? Maybe on sort of more the macro level of things. Or do you ever feel like we, and by we I mean the church, that we are somehow fighting a losing battle? Do you ever just sort of look out into the world and see all that's happening and, and think... Man, we, we seem to be on the, the losing side, fighting a losing battle. Uh, maybe you look at the culture war or culture wars and you think, I mean, how did all of this craziness ever come, not just to be accepted, but celebrated? Or maybe you look at some of the curriculum that's made its way into the education system. Or maybe you look at some of the government regulations that have come up uh, and, and feel like, man, we're just taking L's all over the place. Uh, maybe you're discouraged with the state of the church today. Right, you, you know about this church over here that's kind of gone in a progressive direction or maybe this Christian school that seems to have lost sight of the Christian part of their identity. Or maybe it's just the, the way the culture has shifted in general with regards to religious affiliation. The demographic trends tell us about the rise of the nuns. Uh, not the N-U-N-S, though that would be interesting. Uh, and I said in the, in the first gathering this morning that, you know, that'd be a great title for like a dystopian novel or something, The, the Rise of the Nuns. And uh, <clears throat> someone actually sent me this picture, which has my name at the top, uh, Lee Francois, Rise of the Nuns, a novel. So I'm glad they were paying attention. Uh, But the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, okay? And the nuns are those who check the box, no religious affiliation. When a census comes out or a survey comes out and statistics tell us that every time those things are released, that demographic rises. Uh, Maybe you feel like we're fighting a losing battle because of first-hand experience. I mean, you've got friends or family members who simply gave up on the Christian faith or gave up on the church. Are we fighting a losing battle? I think there are a couple of things that we ought to keep in mind when we are tempted to think that way. The first one is to remember that sometimes we get fixated on our own little horizon and we miss the bigger picture of what might be happening. Uh, I've seen this quote attributed to a few different people. Saying that the church is in decline is like saying that it's raining in Asia. Always true somewhere, never true everywhere. And that's true with regard to the church and its Apparent decline. When you look at things from a global perspective, the gospel has not stopped advancing. It's not raining everywhere. 
But maybe more importantly, we need to remind ourselves about the resilience of the church. Jesus promised us that even the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Now, we're going to see that in Acts chapter 5, but I want to give you a bit of inspiration first. Now, I sometimes get my inspiration from unlikely sources. Uh, If you didn't know this, the NFL playoffs are on right now. And one of the best stories in the playoffs this year is the Detroit Lions. Uh, Aaron Sawatsky was here in the first. I got a good hearty amen from this. So, But the Detroit Lions have been one of the worst teams in the NFL for a long, long time. Up until last Sunday, they had not won a playoff game in 32 years. They've got some talented players, but the reason for their turnaround has been their head coach. Dan Campbell was hired as their coach in January of 2021, and the Lions have been on an upswing since then. I want you to listen to what it was that he said at the press conference when he was hired. He said, I wanted this job bad because I felt like I knew this community. I played here. Here's what I know. Just as an overall philosophy. You're going to say, what's this team going to be? What's it not going to be? Here's what I know. I know that Detroit is made up of great people, some really good people. This community is strong. This place has been kicked. It's been battered. It's been bruised. And I can sit up here and give you coach speak all day. I can say we're going to win this many games. None of that matters. And you guys don't want to hear that anyway. Here's what I do know. This team is going to take on the identity of this city. This city has been down and it's found a way to get up. It's found a way to overcome adversity. This team is going to be built on, we're going to kick you in the teeth. And when you punch us back, we're going to smile at you. When you knock us down, we're going to get up. And on the way up, we're going to bite a kneecap off. And we're going to stand up and it's going to take two more shots to knock us down. And on the way up, we're going to take your other kneecap. And we're going to get up and and it's going to take three shots to get us down. And when we get up, we're going to take another hunk out of you before long. We're going to be the last one standing. Now, the Lions went 3-13. and 13. The first year Dan Campbell was their coach. They went 9-8 and eight during his second year. This year, they went 12-5 and five plus a playoff victory. Now, they're playing again this afternoon in about 45 minutes. Um, <clears throat> they might get blown out for all I know. But when I hear what he said, I can't help. First of all, I want to run through a wall. But when I hear what he said, I can't help but think of the church. Throughout history, the church has been persecuted and ridiculed and dismissed, and yet the church remains and endures, and in fact, will be victorious. We will be the last ones standing. So with that as a background, let me read for you Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. That's a lot of verses, so here we go. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the, party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent them to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people, or some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well, it's a long passage and we're not going to be able to cover that passage in uh, great detail. We're going to cover it in a little bit more of an overview fashion this morning. What what I want to focus on and what I think the passage helps us understand is the way the gospel continued to spread and the church continued to grow. There's a short parable that Jesus told about the growth of God's kingdom. We find it in Matthew chapter 13. In that parable, Jesus says this. 
He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its its branches. And the point of the parable is that the kingdom starts out small, but it grows and it grows and it keeps on growing. And as we unpack Acts chapter 5, I want to highlight four ways that the kingdom grows. Notice firstly that the kingdom grows by supernatural power. This is what we see in verses 12 to 16. Verse 12 tells us that many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now, we've already encountered this miraculous element uh, in our study of the book of Acts. I'm not going to cover all of that ground again. But part of the purpose for these miracles, for these signs and wonders, was to authenticate or validate the message that was being proclaimed by the apostles. And notice that all of the miracles were being done by the hands of the apostles. We saw that same note back in chapter 2. And I think I told you last time around that there are basically three main periods in the Bible where you find a heavy concentration of miracles. You, have, you find a heavy concentration of miracles at the time of Moses. You find a heavy concentration of miracles at the time of Elijah and Elisha. And you find a heavy concentration of miracles at the time of Jesus and the apostles. Each of those periods was a time where God was establishing or authenticating his message through these miraculous manifestations. And the connection with Moses is an interesting one with regard to this passage. Because this passage is really an echo of the entire Exodus story, but just sort of in miniature form. Prophets perform signs. Shadows signify the presence of God. God's people are opposed and imprisoned, but they are miraculously released or set free and they go on their way rejoicing, right? That is the Exodus story. That is the story in Acts chapter 5. To borrow a literary phrase, these miracles are a sign that Aslan is on the move. They're a sign that God is at work in a fresh way. But having said all that, I think it's important to remember that the early church didn't grow because of a clever marketing strategy. The early church grew because God was at work. People were healed. Lives were changed. And just look at the results of this growth in verse 14. It says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The church is growing. That note of growth is continued in verse 16 where it says, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now there's a note in verse 16 that we shouldn't miss. It says that the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. Now we've been at the study in Acts for quite a while, and we have been in Jerusalem since the very start of this book. We've actually been in the temple precincts since the start of chapter 3. But this note that the people now from the towns around Jerusalem are starting to get word of this, they're starting to come, is a reminder of how the church is growing beyond the boundary of Jerusalem. 
Remember back in chapter one, Jesus said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that's going to come more into focus when we get to chapter eight, but we're now beginning to see the fulfillment of that promise take place. The kingdom, the church is growing. So the first observation is simply that the kingdom grows by supernatural power. Second noteworthy thing is that the kingdom grows in spite of opposition. So verses 17 and 18 say this, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Uh, One of the most striking things that we discover in the book of Acts about the growth of the church that we read about in the book of Acts is that the more opposition that comes against it, the more it seems to grow. This is now the second time the apostles have been arrested, but there's actually a ratcheting up of the intensity of what's happening. So in chapter four, it was just Peter and John who were arrested. Now it's all the apostles. In chapter four, they were threatened and then set free. Here in chapter five, they're beaten and then they're set free. But in spite of that opposition, in spite of that increasing opposition, the church continues to grow. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to develop a martyr's complex or or seek persecution as a strategy for church growth. But I think it is worth reminding ourselves that growth in spite of opposition has been a mark of the church from the beginning, from its inception. And there's evidence of this both from within the Bible and from external sources. Uh, John Stott gives this brief summary of the church's experience during the first three and a half centuries of its existence under different Roman emperors. So under Nero, who was the emperor from AD 54 to AD 68, Christians were imprisoned and executed, including probably Paul and Peter. The emperor Domitian, AD 81 to 96, oppressed Christians who refused to pay him the divine honors that he demanded. Under him, John was exiled to Patmos. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor from AD 161 to 180, believing that Christianity was dangerous and immoral, turned a blind eye to outbreaks of mob violence against the church. And that happened repeatedly. Then in the third century, what had so far been sporadic became systematic. Under Decius, or Decius, thousands died, including Fabian, bishop of Rome, for refusing to sacrifice to the imperial name. Then the last persecuting emperor before the conversion of Constantine was Diocletian. 8284 to 305, and he issued four edicts which were intended to stamp out Christianity altogether. He ordered churches to be burned. He ordered scripture to be confiscated. He ordered clergy to be tortured. And he ordered Christian civil servants to be deprived of their citizenship. And if they stubbornly refused to be executed, And that's just an indication of the kind of opposition the early church experienced. 
And my point is that the church continued to grow despite the opposition. So, so Tertullian, who was one of the church fathers, addressed the rulers of the Roman Empire, and he cried out this way. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. That's actually how the church grew. Now, the opposition actually didn't stop after the third century. Opposition and persecution have been the experience of Christians in every age and every place. There are lots of places, even today, where it is illegal to publicly confess Jesus as Lord. But the kingdom grows in spite of opposition. Third thing we see here is that the kingdom grows because of the faithful proclamation of God's people. So the apostles are thrown into prison. God intervenes. He sends an angel to release them from prison. What I find most interesting about that is what the angel says to them. Here's what it says in verse 20. These are the angel's words. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So they are told to go and proclaim all the words of this life. The angel doesn't tell them, you know what, why don't don't we change this a little bit? Why don't you go and proclaim sort of the best bits of the gospel, all the highlight stuff? He says, no, go and proclaim all the words of this life. And we know that they proclaimed even the bad news part of the good news or of the gospel because the leaders were so upset with what they heard. That's what faithful proclamation looks like. You know, one of the great benefits of teaching through the Bible, line by line and book by book, is that it doesn't allow us to sort of sidestep those truths that we might want to shy away from. If you were here last week, you know that we looked at the account of Ananias and Sapphira. We talked openly about sin and judgment. And I don't take any particular delight in doing that, but but that's what it means to proclaim all the words of this life. Later in the book of Acts, when Paul is saying goodbye to the church leaders in the city of Ephesus, he says this. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. All of it. That's what faithful proclamation is. But it's not just the all-encompassing nature of their message that's so striking here. Part of what, ought to, what we ought to be struck with is their eagerness to proclaim this message no matter what the response is and no matter what kind of trouble it might get them into. You can see their eagerness in verse 21. And there it says, And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and began to teach. And that little line at daybreak is not sort of a throwaway line. It's not accidental. It it shows their readiness to obey this instruction. The first opportunity, they went and proclaimed all the words of this life. Wasted no time. The thing they did, of course, is they taught and they preached. 
And we see the emphasis on teaching throughout this passage. We see it in verse 20 where the angel tells them to go and preach. Then again in verse 25. And that verse says, And someone came and told them, that someone came and told the officials, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then in verse 28, as they bring the apostles forward, they say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I think it's actually worth camping out in verses 28 and 29 for a few minutes. Uh, Verse 28 is a reiteration of what the authorities had told them back in chapter 4. Back in chapter 4, we read this. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That was the charge they were given, and that was the charge they openly defied. Their answer in chapter 4 was, says, but Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And here, in verse 29, they say, but but, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So this raises a question, or at least it should raise a question for us. What are we supposed to do when there is a conflict between what an authority, in this case a governing authority, tells us we can or can't do and what God tells us we must or must not do? Now, I think we all know the passages that call on Christians to be good citizens. Sometimes these are the only ones that we know. So Romans 13, for instance, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In a similar way, Peter tells us, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And and those are important texts for us to know, to consider, to obey, but they aren't the only ones that actually speak to this question. And apart from these examples here in Acts, there are several other examples of open defiance of rulers' decrees. So here's what we read in Exodus chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, I think we would read that and say, well, I mean, okay, murder, that's an obvious exception. And we don't deal with anything like that in our day, right? Right? I mean, except maybe some healthcare providers and things like maid. But granted that murder is an extreme example, we actually see multiple examples of open defiance of seemingly less life and death type decrees. We see it in, in Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told there's a nationwide edict that goes out 
You are to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone's going to do this. The music's going to play. You need to bow down. And Daniel, Shadrach, and Abednego say, no, we won't do it. Daniel chapter 6. King Darius has it passed into law that no one is allowed to pray to anyone but him. And this was Daniel's response. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel knew what the king had decreed, but he responded by doing what he had always done, even if that meant defying the king's decree. Now, it's interesting to me that both Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott have lengthy sections in their commentaries on Romans about the misuse of Romans chapter 13. Every dictator, every political tyrant throughout history has used Romans 13 to try and control Christians and Christian churches. Here's the principle Stott laid down. He said, but if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or forbid what he commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God. That's what the apostles are saying here. We must obey God rather than man. And, And the point here is not to say, you know, we are free to disobey any law we don't like but to say that no human authority is absolute. I mean, the New Testament contains lots of contexts in which we are supposed to submit. Wives are told to submit to their husbands. Parents are told to, or children are told to submit to their parents. Servants are told to submit to their masters. Christians are told to submit to the elders of the church. Citizens are told to submit to their government. But here's the thing. The authority of a husband over a wife is not absolute. The authority of a parent over a child is not absolute. The authority of an employer over an employee is not absolute. The authority of elders over a congregation is not absolute. The authority of a government over those it rules is not absolute. The only ultimate absolute authority is God himself. When asked a question about paying taxes, uh, Jesus answered that we ought to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. It's a brilliant answer. Now, we have tended to focus on the yes, we should pay taxes part, right? That's the instruction we get from that. And we should. But if that's all Jesus meant to communicate, he could have just said yes when he was asked the question, should you pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he said more than that. And we have to understand that there are things that belong to Caesar and there are things that do not belong to Caesar. The gospel does not belong to Caesar. The church does not belong to Caesar. Your children do not belong to Caesar. And when there is a conflict between those authorities Our response should be the same as the one voiced by the apostles here. We must obey God rather than men. And the point I'm trying to make is that the kingdom grows because of the faithful proclamation of God's people. 
You can imprison gospel ministers. You cannot imprison the gospel. And we will keep on preaching regardless of what kind of opposition we face or where that opposition comes from. I want you just to notice how the chapter ends in verses 40 to 42. It says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And not to take away the thunder of next week, but just notice the way chapter 6 begins. Just notice the first line of chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, How does the kingdom grow? It grows by the faithful proclamation of God's people. There's one more thing we see here. And that is that the kingdom grows with help from unlikely sources. And this is what we see with the example of Gamaliel towards the end of the chapter. Listen again to verses 33 and 34. Where he gives his counsel. It says, "When, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And then he's going to give them some counsel. Now, the Jewish ruling council that was meeting together to decide the fate of these men was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees. Both groups were in opposition to the apostles and the message of Jesus, but the the Sadducees had more opposition because they did not believe in any type of resurrection. But this one Pharisee stands up, man respected by the people, and he offers sound wisdom. His basic argument is, look, there have been other individuals who claimed to be the Messiah. They gathered a following around them. But they died, and their movement died with them. So his counsel is, let's see how this plays out. If it's of God, it will last. If it's of men, it will die of of natural causes. Here's how he says it in verses uh, 37 and 38. It says, After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, let them alone, for if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So Gamaliel mentions two individuals in particular, Thutis and Judas, the Galilean. They, they lived They led a bit of an uprising. They died. End of story. And Gamaliel was was right. I mean, this was good counsel. He was a smart man. We know from later in the book of Acts that Gamaliel was actually the teacher and mentor of the apostle Paul before Paul's conversion. Gamaliel was no friend of Christianity. He was an unlikely candidate to suggest a course of action that would lead to the further spread of the gospel. Nevertheless, that is what he did. And I think it's worth reminding ourselves, this is not the only time something like this has happened. From a biblical perspective, we could think back to the Israelites living in exile in Babylon. They were there there for 70 years. 
Persia overtakes Babylon as the dominant world power. The Persian king, a man by the name of Cyrus, who was no friend of the Jewish people, issued a decree that they could return to their homeland and rebuild their nation. Here's what it says in Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Getting help from unexpected places is something that has happened numerous times throughout the history of the church. And the point to remember is that God is sovereign over all things, right? He directs the course of a king's heart. Sometimes we look at a situation and we can be discouraged. You know, we don't occupy the positions of power or influence. Like I said at the start, sometimes we can feel like we're fighting a losing battle. I mean, how are we supposed to win? But we're not actually fighting a losing battle. In fact, we're on the winning side. Gamaliel was right. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be over to, throw, to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. See, that's what we need to understand. The reason the gates of hell will not prevail against the church is because to oppose The church is to oppose God. And no one will win that battle. So I began this morning with a question. Do you ever feel like you're fighting a losing battle? Or do you ever feel like we are fighting a losing battle? I hope you leave here today with more confidence than ever that you are on the winning side. We will be the last one standing. Through the prophet Isaiah, God gave this promise. He said, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. In the New Testament, we find this promise. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. No one can stand against us. So let's just pray in the confidence knowing that God is the Lord of the church and of the world. Father, we thank you for your church. Lord, we know you love your church. The church is your bride. It's your people. And you have promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And sometimes we doubt that. Sometimes we look around and wonder if that's true. But Lord, it is true. And we thank you for your promise. We thank you that uh, you have invited us, you have called us to be your people, to be marked by your name, to be protected by your spirit. And Lord, we pray for your power. We pray that we would fulfill the mission you gave us, to be your witnesses, to even to the ends of the earth. And God, we can only do this by your spirit's power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.